Hello, and welcome to Decarbonize, the clean energy podcast from Fresh Energy. Fresh Energy is a Minnesota nonprofit working to speed Minnesota's transition to a clean energy economy. My name is Joe Olson, and I'm here today with Jay Drake Hamilton, Fresh Energy's Science Policy Director. Jay recently returned from Madrid, where she attended the UN Climate Change Summit in mid-December. And while the summit started on a high note, with nearly 80 CEOs signing a letter in support of the Paris Agreement, the talks went over time by two days and eventually stalled out with some significant questions left unanswered. So Jay, what does this mean for Minnesota? She's got the answers. Hi Jay, and thank you for being here. Shall we dive right in? Hello Joe, let's go at it. All right, so you've been to quite a few climate summits. How does COP25 compare to the past years? Thank you, Joe. First of all, I want to make a comment about global warming. I want people to know that it will feel to us less abstract with each successive year. And we know this is true. More and more people, a huge volume of them in 2019, are recognizing that it is going to be cheaper to take action than not to act on climate change. This is my fifth COP, which is the Global Climate Summit, in 15 years now. The first one I did was in 2005 in Montreal, and that is when I had my eyes open to the power of young people. Even in 2005, there was a large contingent of them, and I was traveling there with another staff member from Fresh Energy, who at the time was in her younger 20s. She was actually asked to join a panel that was overseeing youth intervention. And they were, even at that time, very potent and very effective. But in the Madrid negotiations, I have never seen the almost total disconnection we've seen in Madrid between what the science requires and the people of the world demand and what the climate negotiators are delivering. There was a resounding note in two weeks in Madrid about the continuing failure of negotiating countries to act at the speed and scale that the climate crisis requires. So um, COP25 was originally to be held in Santiago, Chile, but was moved to Madrid on just a month's notice due to extended civil unrest and riots in Chile. The Chilean government continued to manage the negotiations while they were held in Madrid, and they were the COP25 presidency, um, which was held by the person Carolina Schmidt. So what was the ultimate goal for this past year's COP25? Yes, the right question. <laughs> COP25's goal was to four years after the world's nations had pledged to limit global warming to no more than two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, that was the Paris Climate Agreement, representatives of nearly 200 countries were meeting in Madrid to put the finishing touches four years later to the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Most of the rule book of the Paris Agreement was written a year ago at the Poland Climate Summit. The discussions at the annual United Nations Climate Conference, COP25, were expected to focus on international climate markets, the carbon markets, which have the potential to reduce the overall cost of global climate mitigation efforts. The real backdrop was shifting politics in Madrid about uncertainty over who will lead the global efforts to tackle climate change. At the same time, there was a very potent vocal current of intensifying public pressure on governments to take action. Despite pledges to curb emissions, atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations reached a new peak in 2018. Newly released 2019 emissions data showed a new a second new record high with a 0.6% increase over 2018 emissions. Now, the United Nations um, Environment Program did an emissions gap report that came out just before this conference. 
The headline of it stated that the world is far off where it needs to be. And just to be clear, annual emissions reductions on the order of 7.6% a year will be needed between now and 2030 to stay on track to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. UNEP's quote, there is no sign of greenhouse gas emissions peaking in the next few years, unquote. So a lot, a lot at stake. Um, what were your personal expectations going into the summit and how did they compare with what actually happened? Yes, well, I was expecting a little bit of disappointment because of something that was published by the journal Nature during the first week of the COP25. And that quote is, the two week meeting, this is at the beginning of the two weeks, is unlikely to yield needed results. Managing my expectations, of course. They went on to say, negotiators representing the world's governments are more likely to postpone the hard decisions until next year's talks, which will be held in Glasgow, UK, when nations are scheduled to improve on the emissions reductions pledges they set in 2015 as part of the Paris Climate Agreement. Now, the 25th set of negotiations failed to make the progress needed toward meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement. The parties to the negotiations, which were nearly 200 governments, failed to fill the so-called ambition gap between what the climate science demands and the world's current trajectory. Shall I just go in and go through what yeah, the big please. failures were? Please, please do. The negotiators failed to work out the details of the vital carbon market mechanisms under the Paris Agreement. The nut of carbon market rules needed is that how can emissions made in one country, how can they be offset by investing in low carbon technologies elsewhere? This is housed under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which aims to promote voluntary international cooperation between nations. It's a central point on the agenda, and offsetting certainly must be discussed and rules developed by the countries assembled to cover it, of course. Now, Article 6 of the Paris Agreement requires, quote, robust accounting to avoid double counting of internationally transferred mitigation outcomes. That's very important because a lot of countries rely on offsetting. Think of it as similar to making passenger air flights carbon neutral. I know a lot of people are talking about that. And using something like that to achieve their emissions reductions goals as a country. So some of the countries that use that kind of offsetting include countries you all think about, New Zealand, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. Now critics say that offsetting allows rich countries to dodge responsibility for cutting their own emissions. But the International Emissions Trading Association, which is housed in Brussels, says everyone could be better off through collaboration. Offsetting would engage businesses in climate action and facilitate the linkage between existing carbon pricing systems. In Madrid, the decision was postponed until November 2020, which was likely a better outcome than rushing through agreement on rules that could have jeopardized the integrity of the Paris Agreement. But vital creation of international carbon markets is a key need for the meeting now that will come up just about 10 months from now in fall of 2020. In the end, the work of countries who comprise what is known by a great name, the High Ambition Coalition. So the people who really know what is at stake and what has to be done. That, must, that includes people from low-lying island nations to many in the European Union and others. And they were stymied in Madrid by a small handful of countries that have made outsized contributions to global greenhouse gas emissions. They are the United States, I'm ashamed to say, Brazil, Australia, and Japan. 
These were among the biggest blockers to progress. Other major economies, including China, Canada, India, and Russia, seemed content in Madrid to say, stay complicit on the sidelines of the summit. Now, so far, 79 countries have indicated to the United Nations that they intend to enhance their ambitions in 2020, officially enhance it. And that's something the UN has been asking for for more than a year now. But these countries represent only 10.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Meanwhile, the world's largest emitters are still mostly holding Okay, well, that, uh, that is some drawback. So give us some good news. Uh, what progress was made at COP25? What did you walk away feeling good about? Well, 2020 is clearly a critical year for the importance of tackling the climate crisis. I've brought some very good news, and I'll point out four indicators of progress at COP25 that we can build upon heading into a final decision in fall of 2020. First, companies are committing to net zero emissions. In the absence of U.S. leadership at the national government level, 80 U.S. CEOs who represent 2 million employees, along with union leaders representing an additional 12.5 million workers, publicly declared their support for the Paris Agreement ahead of the start of COP25. This is called the Joint Labor Union and CEO Statement on the Paris Agreement. It reads in brief, together we know that driving progress on addressing climate change is what's best for the economic health, jobs, and competitiveness of our companies and our country. And it says, we stand with the 77% of registered American voters in over 4,000 American states, cities, and businesses supporting the Paris Agreement. And finally, it ends by saying, the promise of the Paris Agreement is one of a just and prosperous world. We urge the United States to join us in staying in. Now that was signed by the AFL-CIO, the US National Union Federation, that represents the 12.5 million working people in the U.S. in affiliated unions, the CEO signatories included from Minnesota, Douglas Baker, who is the chairman of the board and the chief executive officer of Ecolab, Michael Lamick, the chairman and CEO of Train Thermo King Ingersoll Rand, and David McLennan, the chairman and chief executive officer of Cargill. Just a few days later, Members of We Are Still In, and I'll talk about them later, showcased their climate leadership actions at the U.S. Climate Center. It was like the busiest um, office at the entire conference. Over four days, companies made it clear that when it comes to the Paris Agreement, the Trump administration does not represent the business community. The spirit of diversified, Multi-constituency leadership has caught on beyond the U.S. as well, inspiring similar coalitions of what are called subnational leaders. Think of it in the U.S. like states. Mm -hmm. Leaders like this have developed an outspoken constituency in Brazil, in Japan, in Mexico, and in South Africa. So, in addition, some 177 companies from around the world made commitments to adopt a science-based target in line with capping temperature rise at 1.5 degrees Celsius, which has become the new standard for corporate climate commitments. Also good news. The U.S. subnational leadership that I mentioned was on strong display in Madrid, including a large number of high-profile events and the release of a report called Accelerating America's Pledge, showing how states, cities, 
businesses and others in the U.S. can go a long way toward delivering on the U.S. commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement. The America's Pledge announced at COP25 that subnational actors already are on pace to reduce emissions 25% below 2005 levels by 2030. And they can achieve 37% reductions with even stronger action. The truth is that the cities, states, and businesses in the US that are still committed to achieving the Paris target account for almost 70% of the US economy, which is equivalent to an economy larger than China's and second only to the full U.S. Second point, some parties are now supporting net zero emissions by 2050, which is a real breakthrough. In Madrid, it was up to the European Union, Union which is where we were holding the conference, to provide new leadership. On November 28th, before the conference started, the European Parliament voted to declare a, quote, climate and environmental emergency, unquote. This would put pressure on EU member states, who were all at Madrid, to approve the European Commission's plans to cut emissions by 55% by 2030 and to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. These were not small signs of hope that emerged during the COP25. The European Commission, in fact, released the European Green Deal, which aims to make Europe a prosperous and climate-neutral economy by 2025. It also ensures a just transition for workers affected by this shift. And the European Council endorsed the 2050 net zero target. Meanwhile, within the EU, Denmark found broad support for a new climate law that aims to reduce the country's emissions 70% by 2030, which is one of the most ambitious goals by any country. So, the momentum is starting to build toward a global commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. Third point, investors are mobilizing on climate action more than ever before very evident in Madrid. At COP25, a record 631 institutional investors with more assets greater than $37 trillion urged governments to close the climate ambition gap, including one, phasing out coal, two, ending subsidies for fossil fuels, three, putting a meaningful price on carbon, and four, strengthening their national contributions to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. For example, the European Investment Bank made a groundbreaking commitment to cease funding coal, oil, and natural gas projects by the end of 2021. Never happened before. Very interestingly, finance leaders finance commissioners from multiple nations for the very first time came to COP25. Hadn't been seen before. For example, from Germany, the company Allianz SE spoke about big investors aligning financial flows with the 1.5 degrees C climate goal. Thomas Leish from that company said very tantalizingly, in Madrid, renewable energy will provide half of all electricity by 2030. Now the fourth sign of hope and progress is that public pressure for climate action at the necessary scale had never been stronger than in December in Madrid. Youth, who are part of Friday for Future, took over the main plenary stage they were allowed up there in a first ever for any cop. So we have personally seen the power of a diverse global movement for climate action. Meanwhile, on Friday night, the end of the first week of Madrid, 
about 500,000 people were on the streets of Madrid protesting for more ambitious climate action. Governments have no choice now but to align themselves with the rest of the world and swiftly close the climate ambition gap. The people of the world who care about the future of the world's people will not give up the fight for transformative, bold climate action. The Paris Agreement reached in December 2015 was a stupendous success. The Paris Agreement has, over the past four years, been progressively more deeply embedded into the political, the social, and the business landscape in nations all across the world. For example, no one thinks that the UK's Boris Johnson's election would have contained a commitment to reach net zero emissions by 2050 if the Paris Agreement had not existed. And no one thinks the European Union would have followed the UK's lead and endorsed a net zero target for 2050. Finally, businesses and investors would not have engaged in intense debates about what it will take for their operations or for their portfolios to align with a Paris compliant net zero, two degrees or 1.5 degrees C world. So that is all new. Wow, thank you, Jay, that, that is some good news. So while at COP25, you had some time with the official US delegation. Can you tell us a little bit about your meetings with them as part of the NGO membership? Well, I feel lucky that every uh, one of the five years I've been at a COP, I've been in a room, usually with only no more than nine people or 11 other people, meeting with the US delegation. This time it was a little different. We met with a larger group of people. So I met twice with the official US delegation. First on Monday, December 9th, a coalition of about 50 members of US non-governmental organizations met with six members of the US delegation for about an hour. Now these were different than the meetings that I had attended in previous years. These were deemed off-the-record meetings by the US delegation. So I will convey only the most discussed points that were brought up by the non-governmental organizations. All six of the US delegation we met with the first day were career diplomats. Different from the political staff, President Trump sent in addition um, in the two past years of COPS. Their previous goal in those past years was to hold public hearings on the benefits of coal energy, among other pro-fossil fuel positions. This year, 2019, was different. With at the head of the delegation, many career diplomats and one communications person. Um, one career diplomat had actually graduated from the University of Minnesota. I was asked to convey to the group the climate actions of Minnesota and I shared the nation-leading clean energy economy transformation that has already begun in Minnesota, and many people feel is the best leader among all the U.S. states. Our meeting was held at the beginning of COP's second week. The negotiations were still out ongoing, of course. The chief negotiator at our first meeting was Kim Carnahan. The second meeting was held three days later on December 12th and was chaired this time by U.S. Ambassador Marsha Bernicat, who was in the room for about 40 minutes. The delegations included a total of five members, another about 40 members of U.S. non-governmental organizations were asking questions in the room. I discussed an equitable path to decarbonization. Emissions must be no more than 50% of current levels to keep warming to below two degrees Celsius. This would require a swifter end to coal-fired power an acceleration of renewable energy and electric vehicle development. Much more funding would also be required so that developing countries can both decarbonize and protect vulnerable populations. Ambitions to both reduce emissions and governments backing their pledges with cash for the poorest people, equity, must be resolved if international climate talks are to reach agreement. 
More, dra more drastic reductions must not neglect the development needs of the poorest communities. They were very well represented in Madrid. Those lacking access to, to sufficient food, water, health care, and electric power. It is the development nation's past emissions that are contributing to the extreme climate effects. This funding would enable poorer nations to continue to industrialize, but use less carbon in the process. Now, the NGO asks of the US delegation, Almost all of the questions and pointed asks were about trying to prevent loss and damage or minimize it. Many of the NGO members surrounding me said that the US is holding up assistance to, development, to developing countries. The ambassador responded negatively about this. She said, for example, the US is the chief donor to countries of the world, though she wasn't talking about this instance. She also said, I take strong ob objection to that characterization. However, numerous members of NGOs stated that this currently pledged money for international climate loss and damage is only $12 million across the whole world, so is not sufficient. We reiterated the obfuscations and delaying tactics to negotiation that were headed by the United Nations, United States. The best question asked in that, in that meeting, which was left unanswered by the US delegation, stated, the reality is all the analyses by the United Nations say the world needs hundreds of billions of dollars to address loss and damage. How do we mobilize those kinds of support? No answer from the US delegation. So it seems like non-federal leadership is delivering U.S. ambition and action, and Minnesota is a really vital part of this climate action. Can you talk about the role Minnesota played at the summit? And this is not the first time that Minnesota has been a leader at a summit. We were leaders in 2017 in Bonn and in 2018 in Katowice, Poland. But we're here again. Who was there from the U.S.? I'm going to start from the U.S. and then zoom quickly into Minnesota. They, there, were a, a, there were a number of alliances present. The America's Pledge, the U.S. Climate Alliance, and one called We Are Still In. The U.S. Climate Alliance represents states and territories whose governors have committed to ambitious climate action, which has grew in just one year from 17 states to 25 states including for years, the state of Minnesota and Governor Tim Walz, as well as Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan. Other Midwest states were present too. Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, the city of Minneapolis, which is committed to being 100% carbon neutral by 2050, the city of St. Paul, which is dedicated to reducing those impacts through both policy and action. Now, global human-caused carbon emissions would need to fall by 45% from 2010 levels by 2030, reaching net zero around 2050 to avoid the most negative impacts of climate change. Now, the We Are Still In Coalition now numbers over 3,800 American businesses, cities, and other. Together, the U.S. Climate Coalition's committed to the Paris Agreement, now represents 70% of the U.S. GDP and nearly 65% of the U.S. population. So we can easily say that non-federal leadership is delivering U.S. ambition and action, and Minnesota is a vital part of this climate action. U.S. states, cities, tribes, businesses, communities of faith, universities, cultural institutions, are already making a difference in US, U.S. emissions and are on track to deliver more. Importantly, in, a, in Madrid were bipartisan state delegations committed to ambitious climate action. City states and businesses are America's climate innovators. They're developing solutions, they're working with legislators, 
city councils, and corporate boards. They set new science-based commitments and accelerate our clean energy economy transition. I hear from many parts of the US and from countries around the globe at these COPs, Midwestern, some of them call it heartland action, is more vital than action on the coast for national ambitious climate momentum because they know how policy develops in the United States. And they know it takes a significant push from the heartland to get policy, policy moving forward. Minnesota is the second warmest, second fastest warming state among the US 50 states. We have just survived in 2019 the wettest water year on record. The climate change impacts, especially of heavy precipitation, are impacting communities that have never before had these big economic costs of water impacts. Minnesota can deploy cleaner, smarter, and cheaper electricity to help preserve the health and beauty of our ecosystems. Minnesota is a case in point. The national leadership of XL Energy, this, the first largest um, source of electric power in Minnesota, has now committed to a zero coal goal and 100% carbon-free electricity in not only Minnesota, but in the whole eight states where it provides power. Governor Walz said of this, XL's announcement that it will deliver 100% carbon-free energy by 2050 is exactly aligned with our Walz administration's goals of 100% carbon-free electricity in Minnesota. We also have Clean Cars Minnesota. Minnesota is proposing to become the 15th state to adopt more stringent tailpipe pollution standards to improve human health, lower greenhouse gases, and give consumers more choices provided for sale in Minnesota by the vehicle manufacturers. We have to see these cars and get them to Minnesota and sell them. The Minnesota Smarter Grid study report funded by the McKnight Foundation here in Minnesota shows that Minnesota can achieve our 2050 greenhouse gas emissions goals of at least 80% reductions across, it's a big lift, across the buildings, energy, and transportation sectors while providing reliable energy at affordable cost. Continuing our state's project progress on clean energy will boost our economy by tripling the number of energy sector jobs by 2050, and that number is now at 60,000. The Minnesota's legislature established greenhouse gas reduction goals in 2007 as part of a bipartisan Next Generation Energy Act, which was signed by then Republican Governor Tim Pawlenty. The statute calls for at least 50%, uh, 30% reduction by 2050. Okay. Thank you, Dad. The statute calls for at least 30% greenhouse gas reductions by 2025 and at least 80% reduction by 2050. We know that this is not quite yet bold enough and not fast enough, but would be a great start. There also is a very interesting Minnesota Sustainable Growth Coalition in Minnesota, comprised of some of the best businesses and government agencies that is properly ambitious. They have a collective goal of meeting or exceeding the greenhouse gas reduction goals set in 20, 2007. Now, Minnesota was part of a high value event to showcase North American subnational climate action. It included people from multiple states, um, but including um, both Minnesota and Wisconsin who sent official representatives to Madrid. Minnesota's legislature also sent Representative Kali Herr, who spoke on a Minnesota panel with me, describing the need for equity in climate action. So the US states, like Minnesota, are filling the climate leadership gap left by the federal government. 
U.S. states are collaborating with each other, with the other countries, cities, and the business community to meet the carbon targets laid out in 2015 in the Paris Agreement. U.S. states are calling for more ambitious, ambitious action in order to prevent the most catastrophic effects of the climate crisis. In Madrid, representing the state of Minnesota was Tim Sexy, an assistant commissioner and chief sustainability officer for the Office of Sustainability and Public Health. And he said, quote, the magnitude of climate change and its impact on every aspect in Minnesota requires bold thinking and an integrated response. During the first year of his administration, Governor Walz has announced major initiatives to combat climate change pollution, including legislation to commit Minnesota to 100% carbon-free electricity by 2015, as well as Clean Cars Minnesota, an initiative to reduce pollution from the transportation sector. Fresh Energy continues to strongly support both these efforts, while recognizing that even more is necessary. On December 2nd, as the conference was starting, Governor Tim Walz announced his establishment of his climate change subcabinet and the governor's advisory council on climate change. I say, Governor Walz is exactly right when he says that tackling the climate crisis demands both thinking and deep collaboration. We look forward to supporting continued leadership from the Walz administration and from the state of Minnesota. Now, I want to say a few words about other very potent actors from Minnesota at the summit. And these were Minnesota companies. These are examples of Minnesota companies acting on climate in December and or were companies at the climate summit, including Ecolab, the 3M company, Cargill, and Target. Now, first of all, I want to say a few words about Ecolab. Ecolab, on December 18, 2018, more than a year ago, announced a goal of 100% of the company's annual energy use in North America would be covered by 100% wind energy. Match, perfect match. The renewable electricity generated, um, built on the early initiative that Ecolab took in 2015 when it had made purchase agreements for five megawatts of community solar subscriptions in Minnesota. In addition, this year, the first week of COP25 on December 5th, Doug Baker, the CEO of Ecolab said, Ecolab will cut carbon emissions to zero by 2050. He said, quote, to fight global warming, filtration and chemicals from Ecolab Inc. will cut carbon emissions by 50% by 2030 and to zero by 2050. He went on to say, we don't yet have all the answers as to how we'll get to net zero carbon emissions, but business needs to come together and create forward Second company I want to talk about is Cargill. In, um, the company expanded its climate change commitments publicly, making a science-based commitment to reduce supply chain emissions across the global activities of Cargill by 30% by 2030. Cargill was represented at COP25 by Greg Downey, who spoke of their support for the science-based target to reduce emissions to get down all the way to net zero by 2050. Downing was also on a business panel talking about the renewable thermal as a leading edge of solutions. Cargill, for example, uses waste biomass as a renewable thermal resource now. Downing made multiple public on-the-record statements in support of the Paris Agreement and of COP25. The third company that was also at Madrid um, made an earlier announcement. Their earlier announcement came 
at the end of February, February 28, 2019, and it said 3M has a 100% global renewable electricity goal. 3M converted its headquarters campus to all renewables immediately, starting in February 2019. The CEO, Mike Rahman, said that global manufacturing and technology company is committed to move to 100% renewable electricity in all its facilities around the world, beginning with its own headquarters, tomorrow in this case, which was roughly March 1, 2019. 3M becomes the largest company in Excel Energy Incorporated's service area, which is across eight Western and Midwestern states, and it will be converting to 100% renewable electricity. In fact, it already has. 3M's St. Paul Global Headquarters, as many of us in Minnesota will know if they've, went, if they've driven past it, is a 409-acre campus with about 12,000 employees working across 30 buildings and research labs. 3M's transition to 100% renewable electricity at its headquarters will increase the company's total global renewable electricity to approximately 30% and further help the company reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And 3M notes, recognizably proud, that it has recorded a 68% absolute reduction in greenhouse gas emissions since just 2002, while at the same time nearly doubling its revenue. And the fourth and final company I want to talk about is Target. I worked at COP23 uh, in Bonn, Germany in 2017 with Target, which accepted my invitation to be on a Minnesota panel I created at the U.S. Climate Action Center. But that was two whole years ago. Since that time, Target has looked at their 2017 goal, which was to get to 25% electricity in their stores by 25, 25, 25% renewables by 2025. But the company knew in mid-2019, they had almost met that goal six years early. So what did they do in the middle of 2019? They increased their goal to its maximum. As of June 2019, Target has committed to 100% renewable electricity by 2030. Target had committed to 100% renewable electricity previously, but they hadn't set a year goal. So now they felt confident to do this. This goal applies to all Target's domestic operations, will help power its stores, distribution centers, and offices more sustainably and responsibly. Target will track its clean energy progress closely and has already set an initial check to source 60% of its electricity through renewable sources by 2025. To meet that goal, the company is investing in projects across the country that produce electricity through renewable resources, such as wind and solar power. Target's latest renewable power purchase agreements will help enable the construction of the Lone Tree Wind Project in Illinois and the Sand Fork Solar Project in Texas. Together, these wind projects are estimated to generate approximately, get this, 556,000 megawatt hours of renewable electricity. That's the equivalent of the use of 280 Target stores annually throughout the US. Target is familiar with working with renewable energy partners to meet sustainability goals. In 2016, the company kicked off its first wind power partnership in Lubbock, Texas. In 2017, it contracted for a large amount of wind energy from a project in Kansas, which came online in 2019. It all adds up. Today, an estimated 22% of the electricity Target uses to power its business comes from renewable sources. Wow, that is fantastic. Thank you for that update, uh, specifically about the businesses here in Minnesota. So what would you say the, what do the outcomes of the Climate Summit mean for Minnesota uh, going forward? Well, I, I just want to 
insist that people look at other businesses in Minnesota too, because we have real reason to be proud of those. And we can use those significant, very, very, um, very potent levers to encourage more companies in Minnesota and other states to take action. For example, our St. Paul-based District Energy in Minnesota is a utility voluntarily stopped burning coal on March 31, 2019 because they thought it was the right thing to do and it certainly was. Also at at the conference was the Science Museum of Minnesota. And it is the only science museum in the country that has adopted carbon neutrality as its goal. The Science Museum's goal is to have 50% reduction in carbon by 2030, if not sooner, and to be carbon neutral by 2050 at the latest which is the type of ambition we are trying to move toward. Now, next year, COP26, well, and actually that's now this year, 2020. 2020, November, COP26 will be in Glasgow, Scotland. If the U.S. has no new president after our election, the U.S. will no longer participate in negotiations concerning the rules and implementation of the Paris Agreement in Glasgow. This November in Glasgow, the key item on the agenda is the completion of Madrid's unfinished business rules for the international trading of emissions credit. Is enough being done? Of course not. But it is incorrect to say almost nothing is being done. It is also not correct to say the world faces near-term climate collapse. This is not what the science says, and it will become, I think, increasingly apparent between now and 2030. We have reason to expect 2030 to look completely different than today on climate prospects. We must take urgent actions to reduce emissions and we must invest much more in adaptation to climate change. By 2030, perhaps, the growth in emissions will have leveled off, partly because China's coal-fired surge seems to be over. Coal use in the electric system has peaked and perhaps even started to fall globally. This is overwhelmingly because of the hard work of millions of people around the globe in the energy sector and in the transportation sector. We must allow ourselves to celebrate the very positive facts in energy and transportation and not discredit these sea changes. These are powerful signs of the ongoing clean energy transmission. In 2013, we will not yet have a perfect outcome, but it is looking fairly likely that we will be in a much better place than today because of improvements in energy and in transportation. COP25 president of Chile, who was residing in Madrid, was Carolina Schmidt. And in the closing hours on Sunday, she urged the assembled nations of almost 200 countries to reflect, quote, on their highest possible ambition, unquote, while submitting a new round of nationally determined contributions in 2020 before the Glasgow. Wow. Well, Jay, I feel like I've been grilling you for <laughs> nearly an hour. Uh, what did I miss? Uh, did you get any other questions from folks at any of the presentations that you do or any emails from people wondering about the event? Anything you want to add? Yeah, I don't. I think I've covered all their questions. They had great questions. And I just want to sum up what I'm saying here because we have had such a gift given to us in the United States and in other nations of the world when CO2 from U.S. coal, coal is doing all the work so far, plunging to a 44-year low in coal use in 2019. Coal emissions reductions in the United States and elsewhere 
were an unintended windfall due to much cheaper wind and solar energy. But we have to keep this in mind. In the United States, no other sector in 2019 posted any meaningful reduction in greenhouse gases. Emissions from buildings, emissions from transportation, emissions from industry, all rose in the United States during 2019. So we can't rely on only coal retirements to deliver science-based reductions. We must reduce emissions in all sectors, including buildings, including transportation, and in industry, and including agriculture. So we have a table set for us we know what we need to get done. And now is a time in the United States to continue pushing forward to achieve it. Oh, thank you so much, Jay. Thank um, you, Joe. That was some fantastic insight, and I think you've done a really good job helping us to take a step back from this really huge global event and see what it means for us right here at home in Minnesota. Uh, for our listeners, if you'd like to read Jay's play-by-play -play blog post from the summit, you can just go to www.freshenergy.org COP25, and that's fresh-energy.org COP25. And if you'd like to schedule Jay for a speaking engagement at your civic group, congregation, or college, you can just email her at hamilton, H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N, at fresh energy.org. Jay is funded to provide speaking engagements around the state, so jump on this. The 50th anniversary of Earth Day is right around the corner. Uh, it might not feel like it right now as we're heading into a cold, uh, cold vortex here, but Earth Day is on April 22nd, so get planning. Next up in our podcast series, we'll be taking a look at Fresh Energy's legislative agenda for the 2020 legislative session. You can support Fresh Energy's work by making a donation today. Visit our website at fresh-energy.org and click Donate in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.